Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning, everybody, and, and Merry Christmas. I know, or at least I hope, we're all going to be together again before Christmas actually gets here, but I know some will be traveling, and I sure have prayed for you, safe travels and health and rest and a good time with family and friends. I'm praying a wonderful week ahead uh, for you. You know, because we're traveling and, uh, you know, we come back hair on fire usually trying to catch up with January and everything. And this is an odd time of year. When you announce something right now, nothing exists before Christmas Day at this moment. So it's a little bit of a challenge to talk about January, but boy, when we get back, we've got some big and exciting things going on that are a real opportunity for you spiritually, personally, and connecting with the Lord. We've got the 21 days of fasting. You heard this referred to earlier in our announcement. That'll begin January 8th. We've got a Bible reading plan, and uh, you can you can get that online. We do have a, a hard copy for those looking for that. You can go out there today and uh, get this and be preparing for that as you're moving up to January 1st. And uh, Depending on how you fast, how often, what you fast during that time, I know a lot of us will use that. I want to recommend a tremendous book. This book's been around, I believe, for over 20 years. It's called Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. And uh, it, it, the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Nine Biblical Fast. And, and what Elmer Towns does in this book is he looks at all the fasting in the Bible and breaks it down into basically nine areas. And I assure you, your concern, your challenge, your prayer focus is in one of those nine. And uh, then you can see, okay, what biblically all went with that? How did they fast? What can I understand? Uh, it, it can really broaden your understanding of what you're doing in that moment other than starving, right? So really encourage that. Uh, we have these today available if you're interested and want to be preparing for that. I believe that they're, they're $10 and you can get them out there somewhere. Good luck finding out the somewhere. But where's David? Where are they, David? No, I wasn't just saying wave at me. <laughs> at, the, at the registration desk. And did the first service, they didn't buy them all up, did they? Okay, good. So we have some run out there and, and get those. So, uh, and then remember next Sunday, of course, is our Christmas Eve. Uh, we're doing it in our regular Sunday morning service, but a lot like we usually do in the afternoon, evening. It, it is going to be a 50, 55 minute service, uh, formal, informal, however you want to make that with your family. Karen, uh, will join me here and, and have a time for the kids. And it's a, it's a wonderful service. I think it's one of our favorites, uh, here at the Heights. So I hope you'll be here and plan on, on bringing somebody with you and certainly kids. You know, speaking of kids, Karen and I had the blessing, the opportunity. We had four children and that means four separate, unique, special times. We got, we got to hold that brand new baby in our hands. Yeah, I know a lot of you know what that's like. There's nothing like that moment, is there? Such a special moment. It's just so much. It's so much life. It's so much potential. It's so much future. It's so much good. It's so much pride. It's so much joy. It's just a moment with so, so much in it. 
And, and now we've had the, the blessing of doing that with four grandchildren. And number five is on the way. Number five's in the bullpen. Uh, we got Randy and Claire are going to bring us number five in March. But, uh, and you know, gr- holding that brand new grandchild is even better. It's all of the so much, none of the cost, and none of the work. So it's, it's, that's the best part yet. So all that so much. Do you know Mary and Joseph would have felt that too, wouldn't they? Boy, I think sometimes it's work for us, isn't it? To reach in there into that manger scene and pull them out of their eternally frozen statuesque performance there and realize, hey, these are just two people, not a bit different than you and me. A young man and a young woman holding this child. Maybe a little bit of the difference is they probably thought so much way beyond what we did. Because remember, they've, already, they've each had a couple of visits from angels Angel Gabriel that said, hey, here's this child, here's what's coming. So their minds would have really been wide open and and really expanded on just how much this child is. And then to back that moment up, here come shepherds, there's a star in the sky and angels singing and down the road a ways, we're going to get a visit from some some foreign dignitaries. We call them the wise men. I, I mean, all of this would have just so much added. Can you imagine how you process what you're experiencing with this new baby? And yet we think about them being blown away. I wonder if they were blowing people away. When they said, hey, yeah, come on in. We want you to meet our baby, Jesus. He's God. Yeah, that's a showstopper, isn't it? Let's look and see why they might have been introducing Jesus that way. Would you look with me at Matthew chapter 1? Verse 22 and 23, if you're new to our church or maybe hadn't been here in a while, we are walking through the Christmas story as told by Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and we're not, we're not looking at everything we could learn in this story. We're just looking for a few places where Jesus is introduced to us. And we've seen him introduced as the Christ, the the fulfillment of all prophecy. We saw him last week introduced to us as the Savior of our sins. And then today we're introduced to him as God. By the way, we got one more. We're going to do that on Christmas Eve. We're going to look at him as king. And I assure you, we're going to open that word up for you more than maybe you've ever thought before. And we're usually coming in way under that idea of a king. But today, today, God, look at Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter one, I'll begin in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, look back at the beginning of verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That phrase right there, uh, Matthew's going to use that 14 more times in his telling of the gospel story. A total of 15 times he is taking the the baby, the person, the man right in front of us and connecting him back to the Old Testament scripture, showing that he is the Messiah. Matthew's written for the whole world, but make no mistake, Matthew really, really wants his people to get it, to get him, the Messiah. And they were looking for the Messiah. 
Man, the Jews were always hoping, praying, looking for that Messiah. And they had a prophecy like this one. Be looking for this child who's going to be called God with us. You know, he's being introduced there as God. But I really believe that this whole idea that the Messiah was actually going to be God, I think, I think that was a curveball from God. I don't think they saw that coming. Oh, they expected something big. They were looking for a, a, a leader, a king, a warrior that far surpassed anything they ever seen. Far surpassed King David. They were looking for a, a prophet that would, gosh, imagine this, surpass even Moses. Oh, make no mistake. When they think about the Messiah, they're looking for something bigger than anything they've ever seen. I'm not sure they were actually understanding that it was God. So that's what we want to look at today, that this is God. Were they supposed to have seen that? Now, when I say supposed to, that's tricky. Hey, there's no doubt you and I have the advantage of looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And that really brings some things into clarity. But did God make it clear? That there was going to be a God-man, that it was God himself that was going to be here. So we're going to look at Jesus being human, because you got to appreciate his humanness to understand his deity. So Jesus is human, Jesus is God, and then we're going to look at should we have seen that in the Old Testament. So it's about a three-hour sermon. I hope you brought a sack lunch today. No, it, it, a lot of what I'm going to give you today is bullet points. And you've just got to know there's a mountain of theology behind every one of these little simple statements and bullet points. So first of all, we want to understand Jesus was human, not like a human, not kind of human, not mostly human. He was entirely human, a hundred percent human. Like every human that's ever walked on this earth, he had a birth. We're celebrating that right now, aren't we? Jesus had a birth. And then he had a death. We'll celebrate that in three more months. And so there you've got bookended a human life. You gotta have a birth. You gotta have a death. There, there's a human life. Other things in between the birth and the death that point to a real human body. Uh, he got hungry. He got tired. Hey, he bled. If you stuck him, he, he bled. He had to grow. Luke 2.52 talked about his growth. And it, if you read the verse, it's not just talking about, you know, he went from a baby to being taller and bigger. No, there was growth. There was development physically, emotionally or mentally, even relationally. What the scripture presents to us is a human being. And I've got here this last point. I'm really proud of this one. And it just says the gospels because all of the gospels show this story. When you read the gospels, you're going to read Jesus interacting with people. Some of them are friends. Some of them are foes. And they all think he's a human. I mean, that is evidence. Nobody ever walked up to Jesus and said, are you, are you like an angel or something? Nobody came up to him and said, hey, are you an alien? We don't even know what aliens are, but maybe are you one? Are you an alien? Because you're different than the rest of us. You're not like... No, everybody that engaged with Jesus, related with Jesus, believed that they were relating with, experiencing another 
person, another human being. So Jesus is entirely human. Jesus is also entirely God, not kind of like God, not sort of God, not mostly God. He is 100% God. First of all, he's eternal. That can only be said about God. Only God is eternal. In John 1, 1, his being Jesus being eternal, that's said about him in John 1, 1. In John 8, 58, Jesus is saying it about himself. Kind of an, an interesting thing going on there. He, there the, Abraham is on the table. That's, that's the topic of discussion. And then Jesus says, hey, you know, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Now, as he's standing there saying that, Abraham was 2,000 years ago. Now, that'd be a cool trick all by itself, right? To existed before somebody that was 2,000 years ago. But he didn't just say, I existed before him. He said, I am. If I wanted to say I was before Abraham, I would say, I existed, past tense. I existed before him. But he doesn't use the past tense. He uses that phrase, I am, the personal name of God. Referring to the self-sufficiency, the self-existence of God. God is always the present tense. No matter where you go in space, I am. No matter where you go in time, no matter how far back in eternity do you go, God is the present. No matter where you are in the present, God is the present. No matter where you go way out there in the future, God is the present. He's always, I am, and Jesus just claimed to be that I am. Not only is Jesus eternal, he's, he's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And I use two passages there. One is the storm, uh, the chapter 4, he calms a storm. And chapter 5, he tells a demon to get out. The point is nature obeys him. The spiritual realm obeys him. That's only two things. We see others. All of the spiritual realm, all of the natural realm obeys him. He's omnipotent. He's also omniscient. That's an, uh, uh, that's an interesting, omnipresent, excuse me. That's an interesting one because he's in a human body, right? You know, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, it's trying to explain this difficult concept of a God-man in this one entity, the entirety of God and man in this one. And it says that Jesus set aside, he, he, he set aside some of his glory, set aside his deity to put on this humanity and live with us. And so we say, what did he set aside? What all does that mean? Now, see, I would have thought, well, if he's in a human body, he's clearly not omnipresent, right? Because if I'm in a human body and if I'm right here, then I'm not at the other end of this aisle. I can only be right here. That's, that's a part of being human, isn't it? So this guy walks up to Jesus in John 1. He's a little bit skeptical of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, uh, you know when you were out there by the, the tree this morning? I, w- I was with you. You think, okay, that's not so impressive. Well, understand a little bit of the religion, a little bit of the culture. Jews often, their prayer time was very early in the morning, in the dark. And they would often go outside, would often stand under a tree. That was kind of a cultural thing, a normal thing to do. So basically what Jesus just said, hey, when you got up early... And nobody knew you were there. Nobody, nobody knew where you were. Nobody knew what you were doing. You were completely out alone praying to God. I was there. He said, are you sure that's all that's being communicated in that? Look at the guy's response. He says, are you, you're God. You see, so 
I think in some way, even in his physical body, he still maintains an omnipresence. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. I, I only put one thing up there, John 2.25, that says he knows the hearts of people. And boy, we see that all through the story. They don't have to speak. They don't have to be there. God knows. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your thoughts. All of the time, he knows. That's just one aspect. He knows the future. He knows the immediate future. He knows the distant future. And we see that. And we see the immediate future come true just as he said it. So, so he is, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. And here's an important one. Kind of goes back to last week. He forgives sins. Now, how does that, how's that proof that he's, he's God? I mean, I, for, I forgive sins. Nah, not like Jesus. And I'm not just referring to the difficulty we have sometimes in forgiving sins. I can, with all that I have within me, totally meaning it, say, I forgive you. That does not mean I can absolve you of all consequences or punishment that may come with the wrong you did to me. Okay, so like a clear example of this, if you commit a crime against me, there are some crimes I can say, I'm not going to press charges. There are other crimes, I don't, I don't get that choice. You committed this crime, the state's coming after you. I can say I forgive you. I can say, man, don't, don't worry about me, but you, you, you gotta worry about the government. They're coming. I, I can forgive you. I can't absolve you. Jesus is saying, I can do all of that. I, I can do all of that. And, and before I show you what he does next, look at the next point. Miracles. Okay, you see, everything I've said so far, Jesus eternal, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, he forgives sin. I, I mean, a skeptic can very rightly say right here, you can't prove any of that. You're just up there, yep, 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 yep. you're just saying that. You can't back any of that up. Uh, to a degree, you're right. I, I, I would agree with you, I can't, other than when we get to his miracles, Okay, Jesus said, I forgive you. You remember Mark 2 is where the the guys rip open the roof and they lower their friend down and he's paralyzed, been paralyzed life. He's laying there on the ground and they're hoping Jesus is going to heal him. And what does Jesus say? He says, I forgive you of your sins. I mean, it's hard not to think. If I'm laying there, I'm going, that's not really what I was here for. Kind of hoping for, you know, one of those healing things you do, Right? Isn't it interesting? Jesus always knows the really great need in our life, and we're usually often not interested in Jesus meeting the really great need in our life. We want something right now, right, right in front of us. But everybody said, hey, you can't say that. Only God can say that. Oh, you want to see what God can do? Okay, get up and walk. Okay? And so the miracles do start to become a background for all these things that Jesus said about himself or being said about him. And you, uh, you say, well, yeah, but you can't prove the miracles. No, no, don't run ahead too far there, Skippy. We've got eyewitnesses to the miracles. Not a few eyewitnesses, lots of eyewitnesses. And when they give clear and consistent testimony, when they're willing to die for that testimony, then the burden is on you to explain why they're lying, why they were deceived, and why they were misled or didn't really understand what was going on. That's on you. But the testimony is clear and consistent. 
And that testimony is there about his miracle. So I'm hearing these testimonies, and I think, gosh, the dude walks on water. He, he raises dead people. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds multitudes of people from a sack lunch. Hey, maybe I need to go back and see what he said. Maybe there's something to that. His miracles become the background to back up all these statements. And he actually claimed to be God. Now, that's kind of a funny one, right? Lots of people have claimed to be God, and we call them crazy. You've never heard anybody say, I'm God, not thought. You're nut. Well, you do realize there was a place in time when a guy named Jesus walked around saying, I'm God. I mean, you can't help but wonder, would you have said, you're nut? Probably if not, if you just saw him walk on water. Probably if not, you know, he walked up to a storm and said, stop, and it instantly, immediately did. You see how that works together? Now, if you turn to John 10.30, it's not going to be Jesus saying, I'm God. It's going to be Jesus saying, the Father and I are one. We're one. Okay, well, what what does one mean? I mean, he could just be saying, you know, Dad and I are really close. Well, again, I, I do need to know what one means right there. What, what is he saying? I don't speak that language. I wasn't there when he said it. I wasn't a part of that culture. I wasn't a part of that religion. So to interpret that accurately, look at how the people who did speak that language, who were a part of that culture, who were a part of that religion, what did they understand him to be saying? That he was God. Don't forget one little piece of historical fact. Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God. It is ridiculous to say, and the reason I'm kind of camping out on this is people do say, well, he never even claimed to be God. Yes, he did. They crucified him for it. So Jesus is entirely God. He is entirely man. Wow, this is a big concept. Do you know there was a, a council of Nicaea in 325 AD, 300 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. They're still trying to grasp. They're tr- still trying to understand this whole concept of a God-man and, and put that together. And there was a guy there named, named Arius who said, you know, I don't think he was really a man. I think he was God and he was just, just, he was just hiding. You know, it's kind of like Superman. You put on glasses, you don't even know who he is. Okay, so Jesus is like Superman, all this power, otherworldly, but he puts on glasses and a coat and we don't, we don't know. He's just disguised. And they were battling through that. And there was a bishop named Nicholas, so mad that he was saying this about Jesus and some other comments about the word of God. Nicholas got up, went over and slapped the guy down on the ground. Makes for a fun meeting. And, you know, everybody was really kind of offended by that, so they took his name off the list of bishops, although the Council of Nicaea ultimately went with the teaching and the beliefs that Nicholas was there to promote. Uh, You know, there's a group of people, Dutch, Dutch people, that really just loved what Nicholas did. They used to call him Saint Nick, and they built all kinds of celebrations around him. We call him Santa Claus. Some of you may hate what the world's done with Santa Claus. Don't hate St. Nick. All right? Don't hate St. Nick. He actually believed Jesus was entirely God and entirely man and was willing to slap you down if you had a problem with that. Okay? So just keep that in mind next time you see them rosy cheeks. Okay? So now here's my question. Should the Old Testament 
Old Testament believers, should they have seen this coming or did God just like change directions, contradict what he, what, what's going on there? You know, we have a verse in the New Testament. It's kind of bubbled up to the top as everybody's favorite. It's John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, there's no official, you know, like no pope or a group of pastors or the council of Nicaea got together and said, hey, y'all all have to say John 3.16 is the most important verse. Now, it really does. I mean, if you're going to pick one verse, one sentence that kind of summarizes all of Christianity and Jesus, boy, that's a good one. But it just kind of organically became what we hold up at football games. Now, the Old Testament also had a verse, and it did not organically bubble up. The powers that be, the priests, the teaching of Judaism. Hey, this is our big verse. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Now, I'll be honest with you, I look at that verse and I think, oh, we won. John 3.16 is a lot better than that. I mean, John 3, 16, there's God loving me and eternal life. I mean, there's just a lot of fun in John 3, 16. That seems kind of basic. That is anything but basic, especially in a world that believes in a plurality of gods. is polytheistic. And that's not just back then. That is just as much today. Now, back then, it was only the Jews, only Judaism that was monotheistic, that was saying, no, 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 there's not a lot of different gods. God's over this, God's over that, God's over there, God's over here. No, 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 there's one God over everything. And and we today still follow a plurality of gods. Now, two religions came out of Judaism, right? Christianity, which I would say didn't come out of, it's the fulfillment Uh, And then, of course, Islam. So there's three religions today that are monotheistic. Everything else is polytheistic, including atheism. You say, no, Pastor, you're confused. Atheism means no God. They They don't believe in any God. Oh, they absolutely do. They believe rocks and matter and stuff is God because they give it the qualities of deity. It's eternal and it's intelligent and it produces, and it creates. They also think themselves to be God, because I have to be God to be able to look out all in space and eternity and say there is no God. How could I possibly know that unless I know all things? So they do claim themselves to be God along with eternal matter. Everything's polytheistic. So all of a sudden, no, 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 one, 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 one God. Now, is the whole concept of Jesus, is it, is it coming along and changing it? Because we know there's three gods now, right? You know, there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Nope, God doesn't contradict himself. God's not changing course. God's not doing anything different. He's elaborating. He's maybe making it a little more clear for us, but it was there in the Old Testament. Back to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, God is one. God is one. In the very same sentence, it refers to the Father and the Son. Wait a minute. God, okay, one, but a Father and a Son. That seems like, feels like two, doesn't it? And we know the Spirit's going to be introduced to this. How how does that work? Well, we have Jesus explaining it. He says, the Father, one, and I, two, we are one. Okay, well, now we're back to that discussion. What, what, What does one mean. Hey, I can go to the Bible and I can use that one and I can refer to Karen and I. 
Karen and I, married, that's my wife, uh, Karen and I are one. As a matter of fact, Tuesday, we're going to celebrate 36 years of being one. 36 wonderful years of being one. And after 36 years, we're very like-minded, except when she's wrong. We're very like-minded. We have a huge shared experience of life. I mean, I say we are one, and, and it's true biblically, it's true relationally. You know what I mean when I say that, right? So is me saying Karen and I are one, I mean, it came out of the Bible, so would that be similar to Jesus saying the Father and I are one? No, because Jesus goes further than just saying we're one. John 14, 9, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I can't say that. When you see me, you've not seen Karen. My guess is most of you in here know Karen. I'm also guessing some of you don't. You don't know who she is. You couldn't point her out. If, you were, if, if, if 10 women stood up here, you wouldn't know who it is. If you've seen me, you've not seen my wife. And it's more than just physical, Right? I, I mean, there's parts that are just her and parts that are just me and life. And as much as we share, we're one. But I can't say when you've seen me, you've seen Karen. Jesus did. Understand what that means. When you've seen me, there's nothing else to see. I, I think most of us, that we, it's so hard to think about this. We think about it wrong. I can't wait to see Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. <laughs> Je- no, when you see me... You've seen everything. You don't need to see something else. You don't need to experience something else. You don't need to understand something else. When you see Jesus, you're seeing the entirety of God. That's one statement. Colossians 2.9 says that the entirety of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the entirety of Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead, rests bodily in the person of Jesus. The entirety of God is in the person of Jesus. So now, now back full circle to the question. Should, that seems like different from the Old Testament. Remember, the Lord is one. Sure seems like this one's got a lot of faces. How, 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 what do you mean? Now, was this in the Old Testament? And I want to say yes, because God's clear, God's consistent, and God always tells the truth. Okay, so a couple of things here. We have in the Old Testament... Uh, an individual, an entity called the angel of the Lord. When you and I hear the word angel, we think of what? An angelic, an angelic being, right? So just a little reminder, the word angel actually means messenger. So that, what, that word that's right there could be interpreted angel of the Lord. It could be interpreted messenger of the Lord. Now you have, you have two entities there, right? You have a messenger of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. But this isn't like any other angel because this angel receives worship. Did you know no other angels like that? Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people have various experiences with angels. They're a pretty overwhelming creatures, my understanding scripturally. And there are some people when the presence of an angel who fell out who fell on the ground and began worshiping. And every single time that angel says, get up. That's the next word out of its mouth. Get up, do not worship me. Let's make this very, very clear. There is one God and your worship goes only to him. Angels always stop that. The angel of the Lord does not stop worship. 
The angel of the Lord has qualities of a deity, powers of a deity. Angel of the Lord, but God? How can that be? Now, there, there's not a universal agreement on what the angel of the Lord is. I want to be clear there, but I, the majority opinion, my opinion, is that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the before flesh, before humanity Christ, the second member of the Trinity. How about the verses that we're looking at today? Matthew one twenty three, Isaiah 7.14. We have a, a virgin going through the Christmas series, not talking anything about the virgin birth, but want to be absolutely clear. I believe, we believe in the virgin birth here. And that is not an accessory to our faith. It is a key component of Orthodox Christianity. Do you realize if you remove, I just don't know if I can go with the virgin birth thing. You take that out of the mix and the cross begins to fall apart. What Jesus is doing there, what he's accomplishing there for you and me, gets cracking. It starts to fall apart. The virgin birth is profoundly important to our faith and belief. But I'm not talking about it today. Although it kind of sounds like I just did. But anyway... We have a virgin what? Birth. Human being. A son who's going to be called God with us. Go ahead and say it. A son who's going to be called God with us. A son who's going to be, now say it again except take off with us. A son who's going to be called God. Isaiah, 700 years before the Christ said, you're going to see see a son being born. He's God. Okay, right there I should be on high alert, right? Another favorite Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, 6. A son will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor and Prince of Peace. You know, a a person, you don't have to be God to be called a Wonderful Counselor. I don't think you have to be God to be called a Prince of Peace. I mean, you could be a a leader, a person who just brings a great era of peace, right? But I didn't name all the names that Isaiah 9-6 said, did I? A, A son will be born, a son will be given, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty... Now, wait a minute. A son born, that's a person, I know what that is, that will be called Mighty God... Will be called, okay, now here's the beauty. I just, this, think of Jesus in John 14, 9. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Isaiah 9, 6. A son who is the everlasting Father. It's right there the whole time. God's not hiding anything. He's not trying to trick anybody. He didn't change his mind on how he's going to present himself. It's always been there. We've already talked about this, but Bethlehem. He said, hey, there's going to be a son born. Your leader, the Messiah, is going to come out of Bethlehem. Now, we think of a place where we're born as our beginning, right? And so God clarifies. Micah clears that up and says, now, you think he begins in Bethlehem. You're going to make all these little manger scenes and say, look, little Jesus began right here. No, he didn't. He began in the ancient of days. That phrase is a reference to eternity. This little baby right here, no, no, goes as far back eternally as you can go. And then God comes to David and says, you're going to have a son. 
in your lineage, in your line, who's going to take the throne. I gave it to you, except that son will sit on that throne, what? 2 Samuel 7, 14, forever. Forever. This little baby, far back as eternally as you can go, far forward eternally as you can go, God was saying there's going to be this this God-man, this Messiah, this person who's actually God. There's a whole lot here, isn't there? I mean, the Trinity, the God-man, that's actually two different discussions. The Trinity, the God-man. If this isn't the hardest thing in Christianity to understand, it's got to be in a good running for the top three, right? Hard to grasp. But I've got to affirm what the Scripture says. God is one. Old and New Testament. Father God, Son of God, the Spirit of God. Old and New Testament. We affirm what it says. Now, after saying all that, all I want you to see today is Jesus is God. That, that, little, that little baby there, this is God. And when you're looking at that baby, you're looking at all, not a part. You're looking at all of God. That Jesus, that Jesus that we walked with, that we listened to, that Jesus that we ate with, that Jesus that died on the cross, that Jesus that ascended into heaven. You realize what his last words were? It was one of our baptism's favorite verse. His last words were as he ascended into heaven, I am with you always. Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus, he's God. That Jesus is God, the God of Genesis that created all things, that sustains all things, the God of Revelation that will judge all things. That God who has all power and authority, who has all wisdom and knowledge, that God is Jesus, and he is with you, and he is for you. I should... Simple introduction. So much in this. I mean, hard not to want to just jump ahead and get to the cross, but we're at lunchtime. You know, I wonder what difference it would make in my life and in your life if we actually believed this. So what do you mean? What do you mean if? I, be- I believe this. I believe in the Trinity. I believe, I believe Jesus was God. And what do you mean if I... Be- okay, let me rephrase it. If we actually lived like it. If I really believed that Jesus is the living, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and not only that all those things are true about Jesus, but he was with me in my heart, in my mind. He was with me physically present. He was with me all this last week. I wonder what I have thought about, would you have thought about anything differently if you were thinking that I have God and he's with me? Would you have thought differently? Would you have reacted differently? Would you have acted? I'm confident you would have. I'm confident I would have. I think we ought to consider this. Jesus is God and he's with me. I think this is the entire point of Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, this is a, boy, this can be a time of year where we're so overwhelmed. I hope it's with good things. We're overwhelmed with the schedule of tis the season. We're overwhelmed with the 
the buying and the finances. We're, we're overwhelmed with some of the relationships that are going to be forced to, to get along this week. We're overwhelmed with struggles and difficulties in our own life. We're overwhelmed with our health. God, I would pray for myself. I would pray for every person here. That never again, never ever again, will we be more overwhelmed by anything other than this truth. Jesus is God. And he is with me. And may that be the single way I navigate and work through All that other stuff I'm overwhelmed by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.